0: Hey everybody. This is Ari in the air. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while. Been a couple weeks. But today got a really, really good one for you. Welcoming back to the show Dr. Zach Stein, who is uh, certainly one of the most important thinkers right now as far as what the hell is going on, how do we what the risks are and how we might handle them. In this episode, we talk a lot about the archetypes of generational transmission. Essentially, how do the boomers raise millennials? Why are the boomers holding on so tightly to their jobs, to their resources? Why are they fighting is such a crazy episode. Honestly, it's mind-boggling. Um, <laughs> if you watch the video, you just like see me like with my face in my hands. Cause so much of this stuff is just painfully spot-on, and it really helps me understand what the hell is going on in my own life as a millennial, the child of a boomer or two. And then we get into social media and. How it's killing us. It's literally driving us insane. It is literally going to kill thousands and thousands and thousands of people from suicide, from depression. This is just a crazy reality that is so sad and so scary. Cell phone addiction, social media. These are things that I have recently come to terms with my own involvement in. I have felt these things in my life lately. And I've had to take some pretty serious action into uh, managing these things in my life. And the thing that I have done is delete the apps off my phone and block it on my laptop. So it's probably why you haven't been seeing me there. And I haven't been there because... Let's see what else we talk about. We talk a lot about protest. Uh, he mentions Micah White's book, The End of Protest, and why protest, as we're currently seeing it, is basically ineffective and what that might do to future. So really appreciate Dr. Zach Stein coming on the show and dropping all these bombs on my head. But if you guys like this show and you want to support it, consider donating that's paypal.me slash in the air really appreciate it without further ado here's my talk with dr zach stein For being here, stoked to awesome. have you back. Good to be back. Are you in Burlington?
1: Uh, I'm actually in Waterbury, which is right by Stowe and Mount Pelier. Mm. so right, there, right in the middle of the state by the capital.
0: Cool. Well, the world has been changing since we last spoke, as you predicted. Changing, um, and there were things that. You know, this morning I reread the, um, the War That Broke Out in Heaven, your article, back from March. feels like a lifetime ago that I wrote that. Doesn't it? <laughs> it feels like a very long time. This past time has been condensed. It has been. It's really weird. And there's been like, this is, a, it's been such a strange time for me. I have never in my life had to manage my mental health consciously. Mental health just has never been a thing for me. I just I just play and I just have fun and I'm just happy and things have been really weighing on me and I think one of the things that has really weighed on me is like the meta crisis. Like it was fun to talk about when it seemed abstract and then as I really like start to see the systems breaking down in front of my eyes, it's terrifying and I feel like I looked into the guts of the beast and I can't unsee it. And that's really scary. It's really scary. And I think that what I'm really concerned about, especially right now amidst a bigger or amidst another crisis that is with our equality and our social systems, that one of the things being like kind of swept under the rug is the general, like, like, How do I say this? How do I say this without saying that it's about me and I feel like I need to have space to transform and to be heard and to express and to grow and to learn. Um, This whole Black Lives Matter thing is nested inside of the meta crisis, that's nested inside of a mental health crisis, that's nested inside of a meaning crisis. And I don't see a lot of recognition of that, And I guess I'm curious as to what you see right now, like particularly in regards of Black Lives Matter and social unrest. Um, there's a part of me that's really afraid of rage and like, you know, this uh, Schmachtenberger made a quote the other day that said, "We can be outraged long enough to burn this house down, but we can't be outraged long enough to learn how to build it." And so, I'm just curious about the motivating emotions that are going around in society right now, and what you think of them. And yeah, your just your thoughts on that. Totally. Well, I mean, just. Uh... <laughs> To jump right in, Uh,
1: I mean, there is a tremendous amount going on right now. Um, And I think there are probably a bunch of things that could be said. So I'm trying to figure out what the most useful way to frame it is. Because you, you mentioned this nesting of the kind of civil unrest, protests, kind of uh, anti-racism, social justice, kind of then transforming into actual riots, right which happened for a while. and mm-hmm. and you're also you're also looking at the quarantine, right those are two major huge events right uh, which are related and also emerged, as you mentioned in this context of a pre-existing mental health meaning crisis and crisis of many of the other social systems and basic infrastructure. So, um, so that's a tremendous amount and there is kind of uh, no easy way to talk about it at this point because the other thing that's co-occurring with all this is a kind of uh, destruction of the, what's called the epistemic commons, right? It's uh, akin to like an ecological destruction, but it's a destruction of the life world. It's a destruction of the ability to um, communicate, to educate, to care. Uh, And so that means that almost anything one says about a topic like Black Lives Matter uh, is... um, Complicated controversial
0: mm-hmm. facts yeah, I think that's one of the things that I'm feeling that makes it so delicate that makes me feel so vulnerable and exposed, and I you know like i there are so many things that I'm trying to hold in my head that don't fit my head is so small and the world is so big that it doesn't fit inside of my head, and then this is something that's like really socially charged, really emotionally charged and it feels like there's pressure to push it inside of my head. Yep. Oh, there is. Absolutely. And so,
1: so yeah, I mean, so I'll start listening off the, like, you're talking about motivating. It's like, why is this happening? Is basically what I heard you saying, or how do I respond to it or something along those lines? Uh, is that fair? I mean, cause the, why it's happening again, is massively complicated, you know, mm-hmm. there is as i have wrote a book social justice and standardized testing like there is an issue with justice in our society it's just it's just true now you get into semantics you have to talk about what justice is and i can do that all day and people need to learn how to do that so there's a social justice issue playing out so people are a percentage of them are uh in a truly post-conventional sense articulating critiques against the existing Social body that are valid, one hundred percent valid, historically (laughs) validated, um, and that cuts across a whole swath of the social justice movement. You know, there is an enormous moment of truth, which I think I've done a a job articulating in the context of standardized testing. Um, I think we've talked about that that these standardized testing infrastructures have been been demonstrably unjust, which is to say, in a very complex way, unfair. and uh, racial bias was, of course, one of those things implicated in um, the standardized testing, industrial complexes, perpetration of injustice, right? So, so the thing, thing to recognize is that um, there's a tendency to, at least in some circles, try to overanalyze out of the first most obvious thing that it is which is what it says it is (laughs) right so the protests are you have to take them at face value as what they appear to be first right which is that yes there's a tremendous amount of fucking injustice and a lot of it has fallen on black people especially in the united states so this is just i think true and like i said i i can show you that from my narrow perspective of how standardized testing has disproportionately unfairly treated uh minorities of all kinds, you know, including dyslexics and other people who are just not able to, uh, for socioeconomic reasons, often in the case of the African-Americans, uh, but for dyslexics and others, there's a tendency to see oneself as situated in something that is just completely unfair. And so that eventually gives a tremendous amount of embodied energy. And, uh, and there's a way to do civil disobedience, which is uh, in keeping with the most basic commitments of living in a democracy. You know, going back to Thoreau, one of my heroes, uh, Thoreau who helped people escape to Canada, who participated in uh, John Brown's <laughs> uprising in the South pre-Civil War. And so there's a, you know, there's a, there's a deep uh, truth also, um, or at least has been, uh to the notion of civil disobedience now so the first perspective is to say that it is what it appears to be right Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um as with covid right and then there are other other layers right so the other thing we know uh to pick up where i left off with the practice of civil disobedience and i've spoken before about michael white um who was one of the key organizers of occupy wall street um wrote this book the end of protest uh Where he demonstrates very clearly um, the way that the protest movements, which began kind of with modernity, uh, that the protest movements um, uh, have been uh, largely captured uh, and are ineffective tools. Although they have some communicative power, their ability um, to be long lasting and not get backlash, which sends public opinion in the opposite direction as intended, um, that the days where that's possible have largely passed and that other forms of uh, political agency need to be considered a lot more carefully. Um, And he specifically points to political agency in the realm of communication and the regulation of communication, uh, specifically social media and stuff. So it's also worth noting that, although I'm saying, yeah, so it's social just justice, this is an issue, justice is an issue, there's protesting, protesting is sometimes valid. I'm also saying, well, but protesting is also questionable in its value as a kind of predominant modality of political action, right? It's captured by traditional political means. And so there's a metapolitical stance that needs to be taken towards even that as a as a strategy.
0: Wow. That's incredible. A- uh, Jordan Hall made this great video. It's one of his deep code bits on YouTube. And he proposes the idea that millennials raised by boomers were infantilized, the beginning of helicopter moms who would speak on their child's behalf to their, even their college professors. The beginning of this helicopter mom phenomenon created an infantilization that taught the millennials that they could modify the behavior of the power structures of the authority structures to work on their behalf. Essentially, they could modify their mom's behavior to go to the school and speak on their behalf. And in doing so, the millennials agency got switched into believing that it was that that their agency rested in modifying the power structures or the authority structures specifically the boomer authority structures which i guess as you say that it that that comes to my awareness you know that idea that almost connects that like is the protest the type of agency that's trying to modify the boomer power structures and is thereby ineffective.
1: I mean, that's, that's where I was going. I was saying that uh, the normal modalities for protest have often been captured and it's precisely through a dynamic of generational warfare. And this is where deeper analysis comes in. Uh, You know, that the category of class, um, is in many ways as deep as the category of race, if not deeper. Um, And I'm talking in terms that can be defined, but so class analysis has transformed into uh, something that is not done as more basic than let's say identity politics, but class analysis is key for also seeing what's happening here. And what's actually occurred is that kind of class warfare has turned into generational warfare. And this is something that I spoke about uh, on, uh, I think, Jim Rutt's podcast. And there's a, you just see how intensely intergenerational warfare has been playing out. And it doesn't look like warfare. What it looks like is in communicative environments and per environments of socialization that are purely strategic mm. um, vis-a-vis generational relationships, which means the totalized capture of the life world by the uh, rational modeling of economic game theory. <laughs> so that the dinner table conversation itself is actually a strategic manipulation of the parent over the child's future trajectory and vis-a-vis also the child being wrapped into trying to manipulate the parent. And you know, that does occur in some you know, pre-modern family systems and you know, late, early modern family systems. Uh, but usually, this is a family that has some very deeply systematic and distorted communication pattern. But there's been a systematic propagation of a systematically distorted communication pattern within socialization contexts now, um, since uh, I would say, you know, at least when you start to get these around the dinner table, I'm holding up my cell phone here. Yeah. Um, and so that's an even deeper thing is that, you know, uh, the. The metapolitics of the intergenerational crisis are driving the political show of the protest, which is, yeah, it is the youth, like the puer, to get Jungian archetypal, the puer and the synax, right? The puer is the model of the eternal youth. This is like the hero archetype, mm-hmm. right? the hero who conquers the kind of old evil man of structure who's keeping the you know, like precious secrets or, you know, beloved in a tower, right? Like, so that model of like the puer and the Synex, Synex meaning old man, puer meaning youth. And that, you know, the ideal relationship is an archetypal fusion of that polarity, which is an image that looks like an old man with a young boy on his knee. Um, or the apprentice uh, and the master, um, where there's a symbiotic relationship between the puer and the cynics right? But you can get the constellating disunity where they're stuck in a polar opposite, where all the old man can do is clamp down, and all that the youth can do is is rise up and they yeah. become needing one another, like the you know Star Wars with the Rebel Alliance. Like the Rebel Alliance was largely not building things, right? they weren't, (laughs) they were destroying things that were being built, um, by the, you know, by the empire and the empire is building this huge, massive Synex old man, complicated structure, like perfect accounting, massive architectural achievement stuff, um, caging everyone into these kind of like precise, um, uh, kind of structures of empire, but the Rebel Alliance, the Puer, right, eternally exploding things, blowing up, wanting change, uh, out to more or less destroy. Um, and so, this is a deep archetypal analysis of the kind of tensions that you're seeing. But what this looks like when the culture gets this far apart is actually generational warfare. Um, and so, the helicopter mom is actually uh, passively, aggressively uh, winning the generational war and that's what you don't understand is like somebody was there was a term i think it was the peter pan complex where a woman would intentionally keep her husband unable to do the basic things of life like cook food or wash his clothes or clean the bathroom and therefore was in control of him and knew that he needed her right so similar dynamics can take place intergenerationally where there's never an intention to actually let the child grow into autonomy and re- replacing the adult function in society. <laughs> right? Like, wow. that's what should happen, is what has always happened. It's part of the natural autopoiesis of social systems. said you get intergenerational transmission. And so, if the older generation is in a situation of actually nope, <laughs> like, uh, and so that's, they're, they're not going to let the child. Um, grow to autonomous maturity to then overtake the adult function and responsibility of the, and so, yeah, that's a lot of what is happening here as the war upon the youth, uh, has, uh, become acute. Mm -hmm. And, the uh, you know, just the, just look at advertising alone to think about if people really care about young people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's like you can throw all the money you want in the schools to try to fix the schools. But if the advertising industry with micro targeted goddamn advertising, um, to complex psychometric profiles specifically to addict kids to their screens, like being done by adults who have kids. So you're like, wait a second. (laughs) Do you actually hate kids? Like, are you actually frightened uh, to relinquish control? Um, or so scared that you don't know what you're doing, you have nothing to teach, right? So wow. that's a deeper issue. It's not just that the kids don't want to learn, it's that the elders feel like they have nothing to teach, right? Because they've fucked up so bad. And so this is a very complicated situation where the other boomers are holding on. Uh, the death grip to the resources and the positions within academic and governmental bureaucracies uh, and the kind of debt... Uh, indentured servitude of the uh, younger um, is yeah so it's that's that's one part of the deeper analysis wow. and so you do have a generational thing where you you they they were systematically um, made vulnerable to particular personality warps and to be actually become weapons of mimetic propagation through the social media, which is just again the odd. Advertising was, like, just basically going public and making money off of military psychological operations. So you just have to understand that, like, these kids have been weaponized. We all have, actually. I am. By our engagement with social media and the ability to, like, mimic, like, in the Girardian sense, like, to copy the sophisticated tropes of advertising psychological manipulation to be able to just copy that instinctively is what younger generations are are brought into and so
0: wow it's you say that that's literally some that's literally something that i've like just come to realize is that my brain has been programmed to like be very adversarial very um like mimetic, like I experience something and my mind instantly like wants to share it instantly is like, um, you know, Lindbergh talks about his nuance porn. It's like, it's like this new idea that I get that like validates a part of me. But I want to go back for a second. Uh, I think in your podcast with Jim Rutt, you mentioned that one of this, like one of the manifestations in corporate America of this this, uh, intergenerational, intergeneration warfare is that the boomers are holding on to these positions 20 years longer than their parents would have like yep. and this really starts to get at the heart of what your your expertise really is in is parenting and education and as it seems to me and i would love to hear like okay this is like help let's let's go back a little bit and let's help me understand what this warfare looks like between the boomers and the millennials and help me understand what a hypothetical ethical parental relationship actually might look like. What does healthy generational transfer look like? Right.
1: Totally. Well, yeah. And so am I, Expertise is in education, not so much in parenting, although human development, yes. I'm not a parent, and uh, but I know some. And so, yeah, so I can look at this from that perspective. And I see parenting actually is a subclass of a broader category of education and education being just a, I define it more, more essentially as all of the institutions and practices, formal and informal, within a society that allows for intergenerational transmission and so the truth is that humans have been able to do this well for a long time because we've existed and so the first thing to get is that it's a it's a species specific trait to be able to engage in the dynamics of teacherly authority which is to say to be able to raise the young right and so that's the first thing to remember so like chomsky and grammar right species specific trait this whole language thing right don't usually teach a kid to speak. He's just listening and imitating. He starts talking, right? Uh-huh. uh and Same with walking, which is another species-specific trait: walking upright, right? So it's there, latent capacity, um and that's why when people say with parenting, just go with your intuition, this is actually true. <laughs> but we're so overlayered with mimetic, with mimetic confusion and neurosis and other things that we that we at this point can't trust the intuition unless it's refined. So it's the first thing I'll say that this is not some skill that needs to be kind of learned. It's a capacity that's implicit within all humans and everyone in their life has experienced it. It's, it's actually ubiquitous, you know, like uh, it's just that it's becoming uh, brought up into a culture where informational warfare has replaced um, what used to be uh, the shared space of reason and socialization right so i've I've spoken about this at the human data commons i spoke about it i'm writing about it in this meta modern reader that's coming out but if if all there is is culture war then there is no education like full stop If, if culture becomes so weaponized that the only modality of cultural expression interaction is akin to warfare which means strategic interaction not actually earnest seeking of mutual understanding, Uh, right? Uh, And kind of communicative, shared action and self-understanding. No earnest interest in that, just (laughs) uh, warfare. Uh, And then the content becomes mixed in, which is to say not not just how you're fighting, but what you're saying. The content of what is mixed in is also weaponized. That becomes like more than 50, 60% of Mm -hmm. what passes as culture. Uh, then you're in this potential to have a catastrophic bifurcation of intergenerational transmission, uh, which is to say that the ability for that teacherly authority to be assumed and for the younger generation to step into educational relationships and then take over the adult function of society, you can't do it. (laughs) Uh, You have so radically complexified the conditions of socialization that, as I mentioned before, you get a kind of systematic warp in character, structure, and capacity. Uh, and so that's so the first thing to note, is that it's there implicit, but we're pretty far along this path towards kind of like totalized informational warfare yeah. as the nature of culture.
0: And that's why it seems like there's no adult in the room. You have like a adolescent that's like rising up and rebelling, but the people who should be the adults are like clinging on to this this authority in a what seems to be a vastly immature way. Hmm.
1: Well, I mean, it's actually like, it's it's not immature in the sense of regressing to childhood. It's kind of like when people get Aged and they start to have the gestures of infants and young children. It's mm-hmm. more like that kind of grasping. Mm-hmm. It's important to get that this it's still a synax energy. Both structures have been warped by the polarity, by the splitting, by the cutting off of the youth, right? The father misses the son, as the son misses the father. There needs to be this sitting of the youth, the knee of the elder, and then learn across multiple intergenerational trends. So it's, it's like there's a, both parties are heard, both personality structures have this warp. And um, so, so, yeah, that's speaking to kind of some of the, the dysfunction, right? But you also asked about, well, what does it actually look like? Um, and so it, it looks like, um, and I've talked about this before, the difference between raising and designing right? That raising a child is different from designing a child. And and this has to do with the basic attitude you're taking towards the next generation, right? So think about it, not parent-child in a household, but think about it like elders, youth in a civilization, right? So that total, what's the total attitude of the elders towards the youth? (laughs) Is an attitude of raising or is an attitude of designing? And so it's been very clear for, and again, back to advertising, it's been very clear for decades that the attitude has been designing on a large scale, no holds barred, uh, and that it's moved into the family structure even more carefully. Um, and to your point where you began, where, well, they're also holding on to these positions for 20, 30 years longer. Um, this is what has allowed for this longer, kind of like longer play strategic relation intergenerationally so that the nuance with which the youth have been designed as opposed to raised becomes uh, at a a much higher pitch than it might otherwise be if they had rolled out when they turned 50, like their parents did, (laughs) right? Uh, And know that all the like life extension technology folks, right, Um, when those things started to be discussed in futurist circles, it was this big question, like, well, if you extend life, past 100 to 150 let alone 200 300 year long life which is like what some life extension people like to think they can do then you've fundamentally changed the nature of civilization right because you now you have a generation that's living indefinitely and potentially not relinquishing really power uh, for a century right so that's i think a self-terminating civilizational pattern unless we uh can involve some very very nuanced ways of getting churn in the auto poetic reproduction of the society that doesn't involve death, which is to say retirement, <laughs> uh, and um, or multiple careers or something like that. But yeah, that was kind of a digression. But you know, the main the main point is that um, the attitude of design as taken from. Elder to youth, which is to say, the attitude of design, which is the backbone of the intergenerational warfare, uh, needs to be relinquished, essentially. Um, uh, but that's super dangerous <laughs> because they've been designed. Like, and you have to understand that if you have been raised in such a context where the sense that you have the freedom to construct your own identity has not emerged, which is to say, if you feel designed, then the moral self-understanding when you have done something is not, look what I've done, it's, look what you made me do. It's very different, right? And that's a subtle point, but it's very important, which is that if you feel that you've been designed, that you are not, in a sense, living the life that you could choose to live, but rather living the life someone else has more or less made you live, made you become, uh, then it becomes actually a more complicated thing to take responsibility for yourself, right? Because you didn't really actually make yourself. You have a subjective feeling that the self you are, the capacities you develop, the attitudes you have towards things, the way you regulate your emotion... That these are, in fact, more or less imposed upon you. Now that that's not that's never entirely true, <laughs> but it can be more or less true, and subjectively it can often feel very true. Um, uh, and that's not just like overbearing uh, suburban uh, helicopter parents. That's also people raised in certain situations of poverty, right? Certain situations of racial discrimination. The shaping of identity in such a way that you feel that. Society made you this, or my parents made me this. Um, As Habermas says something about, you know, undermining the conditions for responsible agency. And so if I am unable to do something or able to do something, can I take responsibility for it? Look what I have done. As opposed to this subtle shift in attitude, which is, look what you made me do. (laughs) Uh, And that's, yeah, that is... An unfortunate, uh, but um, it's an unfortunate, but not unsalvageable situation. That's worth saying, is that the poor and the synax can be reunited. um, But it takes setting up a situation where everyone loses face together. Mm. Because we're so confused about who's guilty. um, Mm. And the truth is, everybody is. Right? Mm. It's everybody is. And uh, that's not to say that some aren't more guilty than others. There (laughs) certainly are some are more guilty than others. It's not a relativistic claim, but it is a claim that. The languages that allow us to move forward are languages that allow us to lose face together.
0: Tell me about losing face together.
1: Uh, Well, I mean, it's It's the idea uh, which is, I think, essential to all esoteric religious doctrine um, which is that the only way through to the other is actually to lose the uh kind of arrogance of self right mm. that cognitive empathy is one thing cognitive empathy is where i can think about what it must be like to be in your shoes right but emotional. Empathy is different because emotional empathy will hash you it, to lose the arrogance of self, right? The emotional empathy, you to actually feel what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, right? Not narcissistically project yourself, but what it would be like for me to be in that situation, right? <laughs> but what it's like for them to be in that situation. Mm-hmm. And that can never be perfectly achieved. But the degree to which you can lose your own face give up being right, uh, and live in the truth that's actually there in the other, that is part of what is needed to heal the intergenerational transmission. Right? Um, and a relationship, <laughs> really, that's that's broken. Um, uh, and I'm speaking about you know breakings that happen in the course of life. There are, of course, relationships that just need to be ended, but we're not in a situation as a civilization where the generations can go their separate ways. Uh, We have to find a way through. And uh, right now there's overwhelming asymmetric power on the side of the older generation. Um, Although the TikTok thing with Trump is interesting because that was just straight generational warfare right there. You know, uh, now the question of whether there are uh, again, that these TikTok stars are just being instrumental, instrumentalized and weaponized <laughs> by elders, which is to say that they were shown how to do it, told to do it, paid to do it, by older people, uh, or egged on to do it. Uh, that it maybe only benefits the elders, even though it was a trick played by the youth. So I'm not, I'm well, not
0: familiar we're with that. Or in a situation of capture.
1: Oh, it was. Uh, and again, I'm. I don't know exactly the details, uh, but, you know, the Trump rally in Tulsa, there were like a million tickets people attempted to buy. And so this sense that this thing was going to be packed, that every seat would be full in the house. Um, But in fact, those million tickets were largely bought uh, on false pretenses by a bunch of adolescents who'd spread this thing on TikTok to do so. Um, I don't know exactly how it went down. And then the rally ended up being completely, you know, way way less people that looked almost like empty in some parts and it was like an embarrassment for trump because he'd touted that there were all these people coming because he'd been tricked by a bunch of adolescents on tiktok basically uh i mean it's not hard to it's not hard to imagine if you know if you if you know anything about intelligence <laughs> operations and in states and things like it's not hard to imagine that democratic you know party could get these adolescents to do that, that they didn't come up with it on their own, but they, maybe they did, you know. But in either case, it's it's another example of a, that there are generational warfare dynamics in play. Um, And so, uh, yeah, that's the situation. And that's usually the situation during uh, total kind of transformations of uh, the world system, which is to say in prior contexts of, civilizational collapse slash transformation you also get similar dynamics of um complex contested intergenerational transmission which is you know another way of saying generational warfare um, but modernity took it just to industrial scale and so the youth have just been under the thumb for a long time and uh, like i said now for the long time under one common generation which has made it just this much more acute situation because um, the baby boomers kicked their parents out early i mean the baby boomers took over the universities within like their 20s and 30s uh changed everything and then they've just been sitting there and then maybe precisely because and this is the game with jim Rudd, like maybe because you guys jim knew that that was possible you controlled your kids so precisely that they would never be able to overthrow you um, uh, and the more you're doing things you're not proud of Unless you want to be overthrown, because when you get over when the generations roll over, you have to hand over what happened, right? Like you don't just hand over resources and power; you hand over the wisdom of what happened. Tell me everything, right? That happened, so I can take over your work, right? This is the this is the request. But if you've done shit you're not proud of, then you're definitely not going to just hand over the keys to the kingdom to the youth, because they're going to go through all your files and see. (laughs) <laughs> and see what happened. And that's another thing that's playing out. Like the cynics, because the synex becomes so twisted and old and unable to relinquish power, the secrets become darker. The cynics becomes darker, more depressive, more clamping down, more f- fragile and ri- rigid and recalcitrant, um, and also more desperately seeking uh, release. And so, similarly, then the the pu-erh splits off harder, and the youth become more irrational. The youth become um overtly uh emotionally demanding uh you get martyrdoms you get the hero's journeys that are inevitably self-terminating and self-defeating you get all of those dynamics of the split off uh, get stronger too um and uh yeah so that that's a deeper uh a deeper cut but i think the the quickest way to doing something about it, as I've already mentioned several times, is thinking about the informational ecosystems and the communication dynamics that you're actually involved in, uh, and work very hard to change those contexts of of socialization and interaction for everyone. And wow. that's a long that's a long way of saying basically, like spend a way less time on social media, um, and. Uh, work to have social media itself um, changed because that's that's really the only way out is
0: you're the scariest you're the nicest scariest person i've ever interacted with (laughs) this is so terrifying and the things that you lay out are both like i have like a revelation like i feel like pieces come into like pieces click together both in the way that i experience my generation the way that I experienced the world and the discourse as well as my own fucking childhood this happened last time we talked of like holy shit like me being drugged for ADHD as a young adolescent like that was more painful than I realized and like I had this revelation as we talked that I was like like ow and now it's like holy shit you're so right about the worse things you do, the less likely you are to happily hand over the ledger of all of your of all of your doings and now this pile of shit that the boomers have to protect themselves from just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper that is just crazy that's a crazy way of looking at that and honestly it's something that I'm going through right now with my relationship to my parents I'm like wait a second if my brother was born when I was 11 months old. Then what were you doing when I was an infant? You know, I'm just like kind of coming back to like question some of the things. And so, wow, that is a incredibly astute and profound um, look at what's happening right now. I really appreciate that. And I think that the, the uh, thing that you were segueing into is something that I have, since we last spoke, I have realized in a way that is, quite painful for me i mentioned earlier that i have recognized my own conditioning for my mind to be adversarial for it to be like shareable for my all of my thoughts are like some kind of meme that can be shared to like build up the case of my own beliefs like outwardly like that all everything i experience like fits on my mask somewhere whether it's the things that i don't like or the things that i do like
1: right well and this is exactly how it works right it's like so one of the most basic again autopoiesis is basic to all complex systems so the psyche is a very complex autopoietic system one of the most basic functions is the regulation of identity through the regulation of self-esteem which is the am i good am i doing it right Am I good? Am I doing it right? Am I worth something? Will you love me? Like that's a, If that's not a closed loop, then you have to close it somewhere. If mm-hmm. you're being designed, then you don't know it's a closed loop mm-hmm. because it, someone has to answer it for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Am I working the way you wanted me to work? You designed me. If you're being raised into autonomy, then you can close that loop yourself and you can find people who will close it with you. Um, mm-hmm. in, in a, again, in a in a context that's resonant with your own. Uh, nature essentially right and so like, like literally it's the there's capture massive mind capture by the regulation of identity through the regulation of self-esteem through the use of social media that the main thing it's grabbing the main thing it's grabbing is that it's grabbing that in normal tribal situation and family context you you did close that loop pretty early. You can close it every day through conversation with people, which is to say you're walking around and people are validating you and you're validating them. Disp- skills and competence are displayed and the society works in part because you're contributing to it, even if it's just a household that's running well, right? In the absence of that, or if that is downplayed as actually not important to self-esteem, uh, which is to say you're brought up into the meta-narrative related Regulation of self-esteem and identity through signaling allegiance to socially mediated meta-narrative, right? And so that's a a kind of very complicated uh, conformist-based um, uh, identity regulation system. And that's what social media is, I think, literally basically designed to do, uh, which is to capture to capture your ability to feel good about yourself and make it dependent upon the um, validation through asynchronous text-based and image-based uh, communication, which is different than the regulation of self-esteem <laughs> through embodied gesture and co-presence with wow. joint attention.
0: Right? It's I hear, um, I hear it. So that's some wicked that's some wicked shit for sure and i hear it is identity regulation and validation through virtue signaling as opposed to embodiment
1: but well, virtue signaling is too specific of a term because it's okay. not just happening in virtue signaling because it would happen in those people who are not virtue signaling right it's happening through the use of social media and You know, if you take a very complex view, it's happening across different developmental levels as those levels interact through the social media ecology, right? So, uh, but it's still the basic capture of a um, fundamental need, essentially this this need for the regulation of self-esteem and self-worth, and so so that becomes this dangerous, vicious feedback loop where if you're if you're needing to do that through Social media mediated interaction. And that social media engine is actually not designed to facilitate that. It's actually designed to make money by capturing your attention, which is to say, like, you know, maybe this wouldn't be so bad if we knew this about how people's identities worked. And we created a social media environment that was actually fit to the architecture of the mind said it was a healthy place to engage in identity creation through asynchronous interaction with others, right? But it's not, right? The social media environment is designed to just capture your attention and sell you advertisements for profit. And then at a deeper level, it's designed to manipulate you through those advertisements to do certain things in the world. Uh, And so, yeah, that sucks. It's like the biggest problem we have is that our minds have been, captured uh and we're regulating our identities and self-esteem through uh you know media of communication that are not fit for that purpose
0: holy shit i see it in my life i see it I've, i've been i've grown up in just the perfect time like from the time like i got a facebook account when i was like 17 or something it was just like the perfect timing for me to for my identity. Like that was really when it was like crystallizing. And I've just wholly grown up with that as just such a foundational means of communication. Right. <sighs> fuck totally. man. Fuck. And I'm pretty autonomous person. I'm pretty like it, it. Totally. You spend six hours up in the air flying around. Exactly. Fly. Yeah. Exactly. I have things that just like, I, have to be outside there's no way to there's no way to use my cell phone then if i tried but it's like holy shit this problem is so huge cell phone addiction i i literally have only in the meta crisis have i fully come to terms with like my own cell phone addiction my own screen addiction and i mean only just beginning to do that i'm only just beginning to do that That that's such a that's such a fucking hard thing for me to admit that's such a hard thing for me to admit because I really like when I have people over and they stare at their cell phone, oh my God, I just resent that so much. I resent <laughs> right, that so much. Right. Right. I know I project my own like disdain for the part of me that's addicted to my cell phone onto everyone else. Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah, no, that's it, man. And uh, I hate to make it that simple, but at the end of the day, you know, as an educator, you end up, you end up looking at the basic educational infrastructure, which is also the basic communication infrastructure. You just boil it down. And you realize, oh, there's this, there's this basic moment of human interaction that's necessary. When we do done, there's no place for it to happen. This moment of teacherly authority, this moment of the conferral of identity, self-worth, right? Through real, legitimate, cross-generational, um, uh, you know, the yes of the father of this. And, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, we will see if, the tide shifts with people's use of social media. Right now, it's I think peaking, basically. Holy but, shit! Hey, and- but we're in the middle. We're in the middle of a mental health crisis, as you started us out with, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's gonna that's gonna start to become quite hard to ignore, um, especially when uh, ad- the adolescent me- mental health situation becomes uh, you know acute in. Um, Context of self harm uh, and just uh, more overt disability. And so that may be the thing, just like lung cancer was for smoking, (laughs) uh, that kind of allows us to see that this technology is is basically toxic, it's basically broken. Um,
0: So tell me. So that
1: that could allow, and that's going to happen sooner than you think um, in terms of just the numbers when you look at the correlations between. Uh, adolescent mental health, and at the end of the day, I'm talking about fucking uh, uh, suicide. Um, and so that uh, that data will become harder to ignore and kind of downplay. And I think we could see uh, more of a um, you know more of a concerted effort of, of people figuring out ways to
0: do things differently. That's what I hope. Yeah, I guess the acute manifestation of that deep problem is our children start killing themselves in huge numbers to make us wake up to the reality of what's been going on for what is now at least a dozen years, if not, you know, 15.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing to say. It's already happening. And, uh, and it's not just that, it's also the other forms of uh, just kind of kind of tragic identity structure, right, is the way I would say, that the youth have no escape from tragedy, right? And that's the other kind of crazy thing about the generational warfare is that, um, you know, the youth are the ones who have longer lives to live. Right. So in a sense, like more is at stake for the youth. Um, and that's always that sense of like the leaving a world behind right, is part of that, that, that dynamic. And so there's this question of um, you know, can there be ways for the youth to imagine a future world? Uh, and I think there are. But I don't think that they're (laughs) readily available and obvious. Because
0: what do you mean what do you mean when you say that that they can't escape tragedy? The youth cannot escape tragedy.
1: So like uh when you think about the depression that's coming, right? Uh starting probably I'm not uh, talking about psychological depression, I'm talking about economic depression, the economic depression (laughs) that's coming. Um, you know. Uh more young people will live through that than old people. Uh Like that will shape their identities in the formative years uh, so that, you know, they will grapple with the world that's been created longer. uh, And this is just the truth of it. And so it's just underlying the irresponsibility of the Synex and the warp of the Synex perspective into understanding the present on its own terms, when you have to understand the present in terms of the people who are about to inherit it, right? Which is that the Synex sees the world only as it's known it and can't imagine a future world, but the youth have to imagine a future world, <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, that pathological synex leaves no room in the imagination of the youth for a better future, basically. Um, and that, you know, that's an intolerable psychological situation. Uh, and again, like I said, these are these are these are different than the problems we have with like that there are limited resources on the planet that we can't keep extracting. Like this is not a technical problem. This is not a innovation that's needed uh, that requires like hard math problems and stuff, right? This is about how humans uh, choose to treat one another uh, and it's about where they place their time and attention and basically their will. Um, And so you can disconnect your emotional and personality and identity self-regulation. You can disconnect that (laughs) from social media and you can re- you can reposition it in your lived concrete experience in community. You can do that. It's possible. Um, and many people have that. Um, uh, but it is, uh, going to become requisite to, to do that if we don't clamp down and start to regulate social media, because it's, it's driving us insane.
0: It is. How do we, how do I do that? How do I do that? How do I, I mean, like Rimberg told me the other day, he was just like, Ari, you just need to be off of social media. I was like, okay, off. And then three days later, I was just like, oh my God, what the fuck, I feel so much better.
1: Yeah, you just get get off of it. Like that's the first thing. And figure out if you actually need to be on it. Not because of the need to, uh, basically what I'm saying is like, um, very few people actually need it. Like some like, Maybe small business owners and people who are, you know, basically economically in a kind of relationship with Facebook that they can't do elsewhere, can't immediately get off and I recognize that. Uh, But for most people, you can just simply stop using it. Um, Now, Facebook's interest when you try to just totally cancel. They're like, oh, okay. Well, you you maybe don't want to do that. So let's see what it's like in three weeks or two weeks or something, right? So they'll actually ping you and be like, are you sure? Right when you're at the threshold, and they probably researched it. Right when you're at the threshold of being able to like cross that hump and be after the addiction, right? So like you have to. It will take willpower. So the first step is completely getting off. You know, completely getting off, basically, which doesn't mean completely checking out. From the world or people at all <laughs> it means uh, checking in with the world and people uh, in a different way through different modalities um, and then run that for long enough where the discomfort changes and the ability to regulate your identity through those pathways and conversations and interactions that are not on social media become strong enough to support you and that's going to look different for everybody and it's going to take time and it may require changing other patterns in your life, aside from just social media. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, may require changing the kinds of conversations you have in the most important relationships that you have, uh, so that you, they can become places that actually do fortify the self with the nutrients it needs to be strong and healthy I think it is actually easier uh, to do that for some people than it is on social media and they don't even realize it, you know, like the addict who stops the addiction and realizes they felt great without the drugs. <laughs> the drugs made it actually harder to feel great. Mm. Um, and you can't tell that until you're clean. You know what I'm saying? So it's like the same thing with social media. In fact, many people have right in front of them, <laughs> people who love them and ways to exercise their skills and ways to stay informed right there. Um, but Facebook is running interference on the ability to engage with those. So yeah, enough. Step number one, cut it out. And you know, I think step number two is, uh, you
0: know, the
1: kind of think that's what it comes down to uh in another respect is that facebook is changing our ability to understand people i think it's making it he's making people it's putting like everyone on the spectrum basically or it's putting everyone in a position of uh you know Absent and defiant uh, disorders, putting everyone in the position of uncontrollable projection. Like it's it's kind of psychopathologizing all of our uh, reads on people because they're all mediated by asynchronous text and image and advertising. So it's like once you check out, cut it out. Then you need to re-imagine uh, uh, other people. You need to have enough interactions with people that you start to change your root experience, like your your embodied experience of like, oh, this is what people are, right? Because we live with the imaginal projection of the people that are populating the news feed on our social media, as opposed to living with actual people. (laughs) And so those imaginal projections are definitely not accurate. Um, which means that we think the world is full of way more terrible people than it actually is, um, and we think people are much more irrational than they actually are. And so that's another bit, but that that takes time. But, and you can do that right up close and personal <laughs> with your own relationships, you know, um, and then expand that. But that's needed. What was um, the what was the um, being led to systematically misunderstand them.
0: And what were the, I lost you there for a second when you said uh, step number two is reevaluating or reimagining people.
1: Yeah, reimagining people,
0: basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, I felt this right as we came into COVID. I like put up an ad on Craigslist that I would help people garden that I would build them boxes, that I would drive I my truck. and and I wish you lived around here. I would employ. yeah, Yeah. Um, that I'd like deliver the soil and yada, yada. And it was like a pretty stark realization. I was like, wow, I feel like better just being in communion with the community, like being around real people. I was like, people love me. Like I've been a professional athlete for so long, which means that I basically email ethereal people that I've never met and beg them to like, find some kind of nebulous marketing value in my content as opposed to like, Hey, shake my hand. I'm going right. to build you a garden. You're going to grow some food in it. It's going to be great. Yeah, totally. And
1: it's, it's another way of saying it is like, get out of the simulation. Yeah. Like, get out of the simulation and into reality. And yeah. And it's not just that you're like around people, it's so that you're doing things for people that they need, you know? Uh, and that's another way of saying service and care are actually, uh, the Royal, the Royal road to re-regulating your self-esteem is to actually do service and care, um, for, for people in situations that are just demonstrably worse than yours, Mm -hmm. right? Like, uh, in a situation of need. Um, Mm -hmm. and so sometimes you can get paid to do that work. Sometimes you can't, Mm -hmm. but, uh, that again research shows (laughs) to quote the research like the research shows (laughs) that one of the best ways out of depression is to actually do caregiving or service work um and uh and so similarly when you're you get cut out the you know cut out the social media entirely begin to reimagine people and the best way to do that is probably through some kind of service or care like Mm -hmm. concretely administered not like working as a Social media activist, or even marching and things. I mean, although there are conditions within the protests situation that can create real context for caregiving and actual service, as opposed to like needing to get the picture to upload to your social media account to regulate your social life. That you're having the protest for the way it appears within the simulation. Mm -hmm. right this is what michael white talked a lot about in the end of protest with that occupy ended up being done for its presentation in the simulation of social media as opposed to being done for itself so you need to find those situations that are done for themselves as opposed to being done for the way they're re-represented into the simulation um and uh that's that's how you break the thing right you break the thing by being here without it ever being re-represented and then it's done for what it is. It's not done for how it appears in the simulation. Uh, and uh, there are so many opportunities for that. And Facebook would lead us to think there are not. <laughs> right? That like, it's the only way to be a responsible human is to stay up to date with your newsfeed. Um, when in fact, the opposite is probably true.
0: <sighs> Zach, I'm sure I'm I'm... I'm- definitely hopeful that there's some kind of relief on the far side of this complexity, but the conversation at the moment is just terrifying to really dive into the scope of the problem and see it in myself and see it in my friends and my whole generation and to see it in our political movements and our social movements. It's like, it's really, really heavy. And I so appreciate your, your perspective here. I think that's so salient and yeah. Wow. Wow, man there's so much work to do right there and um yeah that's that's all It's all mind-boggling stuff i really appreciate your perspective here and um i just want to encourage you in person while i have you you're uh we we need you i really appreciate it. like every time i talk to you it's like i feel mentored and i feel supported in like in my personal growth as well as like how it might resonate out to the larger world and um Hmm. i had a great time on with john verveke and we sang your praises Uh, i think you're the most mentioned person in all of these conversations with these game beers these future thinkers um so we're paying close attention we appreciate your writing and your books and your thoughts so thank you so much we love you thank you yeah thank you brother it was a pleasure I yeah.
1: didn't mean to freak you out <laughs> <Very hopeful.
0: laughs> no you did I need to be freaked out man I need to fucking be freaked out like that's like a pretty like I need a strong motivated emotion here and like it was a week ago it was depression I was like holy shit what's happening to my brain yeah, it's not as useful
1: <laughs> no it's not as curiosity and mind boggling freaked out just...
0: yeah <laughs> okay man let's talk in four weeks yep okay Zach thanks buddy later
1: later man